this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. I'm overdue for a good C.S. Lewis quote. And, you know, a bunch of preachers start with C.S. Lewis quotes. Just to explain this in different words, we won't know if we truly have a certain virtue until we go through a test. Another author puts this differently. He, he asks, do you know if you are truly a loving person until your capacity to love is tested? Do you know if you're truly an honest person until your integrity can cost you something tangible? Do you know if you're a humble person until you receive the praise and glory of people? You know, a lot of us here, we probably will never have to display the courage to, lay, to risk our lives, our physical lives for somebody else. We may not have to display the courage to risk our reputations or our careers to stand up for what is right. But all of us will face tests. We believe that God is worth following in any situation. Oh, you know as well as I do, it is easy to say that. It is another thing to live it. We, that belief will be tested. We believe that God is good all the time and that God is always worth being trusted. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to live that. We will be tested. That belief will be tested. All of us as Christians have committed to obey the Lord, to follow the Great Commission and make disciples of Jesus. Oh, it's one thing to say we've committed to that, but that commitment will be tested. And friends, we will need courage to face those tests. And looking at the book of Nehemiah, we could trace that virtue of courage throughout the entire book. From the very beginning, Nehemiah's brother, his name was Hanani, he had courage to go to, to travel from Jerusalem all the way to the Persian capital of Susa. And he did this to tell his brother that his hometown was in a really sad state. We see courage there. And then we see courage in Nehemiah himself. He's the cupbearer to the Persian king. And he had courage to go and tell the king about the situation in Jerusalem and ask him if he could go back. Nehemiah had courage again when he actually went back to this rundown city and he saw the walls and he went forward to, produce, uh, to lead the rebuilding of these walls in the face of opposition. The people in Jerusalem had courage when they followed Nehemiah and started rebuilding and persevered to keep going. Even still, the people had courage when they read the book of the law, when they read scripture again and they found how they have lived hasn't been right. They had courage to own their sin and walk in repentance. And again today, we could see courage show up. The people have courage to repopulate this desolated and now destroyed city of Jerusalem. They had courage to do something new. But we zoom out further, and the book of Nehemiah is more than about the good virtue of courage. The book of Nehemiah, like any book of the Bible, is about God. It's about God who rules over all the kingdoms of the earth. God who graciously restores his people even when they have went astray. 
And we see this again as we come close to the end of the book of Nehemiah. If we could sum up the main idea from Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12, it's this. Is that as he has always done, God vindicates our courageous, steadfast faith in him. God vindicates our courageous, steadfast faith in him. He accomplishes his plan and he leads us to joy. Going to have three sections to cover these two chapters of of the Bible. Courage displayed, courage remembered, and courage's fruits. And it's my prayer today that God would sustain our trust in him when that trust is tested. It's my prayer today that God would embolden us and give us courage by reminding us of the hope that he is calling us to. It's my prayer today that God would convince us again that he is worth following in any and every situation. So you haven't turned there yet. Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 11. And don't just hear that as something as we regularly say. Please physically turn there in a book or even look on your phone. That's fine. To Nehemiah chapter 11. It'll really help you to follow along if you have uh, this in front of you. And if you're looking at a Bible that looks like this, it's in the chair in front of you, you will find it on page 406. Nehemiah chapter 11. Now, before we read any specific parts, I want you to do something. I want you to just glance at chapter 11 as a whole. Now, bring us up to speed. Remember the beginning of chapter 7, it tells us about the people who could live in Jerusalem. Now, this chapter here, you see another big long list of names. These are the people who would live in Jerusalem, who actually moved there. Now, it opens with how people decided to go back to Jerusalem. It must have been like fantasy football season because they had a draft. We said like earlier, they had to basically draw straws because nobody wanted to do it. But then once they figure out who's going to move back there, the rest of the chapter is really who are the first people who are back in Jerusalem. And so notice there, it starts with the leaders. Kind of the chiefs of the provinces, it says in verse 3. And other leaders who, they're the first ones mentioned who go back to Jerusalem. And I don't think this is an accident. I think it's purposeful. You see, Jerusalem was this rundown city. It was a big start over project. But that didn't mean Jerusalem got the leftovers. The best and the brightest of Israel moved back to this rundown city where there was need. I think it's a good principle for the church to keep in mind today. You know, we say things that like every, we can glorify God in any and every profession. And we say things like, you know, doctors and lawyers are worthy professions. They're, they're good things. We have doctors and lawyers among us here. But I think this is a word for the church that the best and brightest went back to Jerusalem where there was need. Word for the church is our best and brightest we shouldn't reserve just for the quote-unquote successful careers. We too should send even our best and brightest to the pastorate, to the mission field. Shouldn't just reserve them for being doctors and lawyers, even though those are good pursuits. So that's who lived in Jerusalem. Started with the leaders, but then as we keep going, you see that there are mainly people from the tribes of Judah and the tribes of Benjamin. This is because uh, Israel was split up into different regions, And different tribes or different descendants of Israel lived in those different regions. So if you don't know, Israel, his also name was Jacob. He had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became 12 tribes. Judah and Benjamin 
were two of those tribes, and they lived in the area where Jerusalem was. So it would make sense that people from Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem again. And then as chapter 11 continues, we see who else lives in Jerusalem. There were Levites who lived there. The tribe of Levi is is another tribe of Israel. This tribe was set apart for religious service. And then the chapter closes. uh, We see priests, gatekeepers, temple servants, and singers in the city of Jerusalem. These would be people who are uniquely employed because the temple was there. And then the chapter closes with people who lived in the villages outside and surrounding Jerusalem. So this is chapter 7, kind of an overview of it. And I don't know if you're thinking, you might be thinking, so just remember the points of this first point, of courage displayed. This group of names, this is what we get from. This is a display of courage? Really? Courage here? How? Well, in the spirit of back to school season, let me not just get the answer, let me show my work. All right? We're going to focus mainly on the first two verses of chapter 11 to see that this truly is, moving back to Jerusalem, truly was a display of courage. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 2 says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. To show that this group of people who moved back to this city really did display courage. We're just going to ask two simple questions. First, why did the people move back to Jerusalem? Why were they willing to do this? Well, I'm going to argue that they they were willing because they had courage. Well, let's fit this within the flow of the story on the whole. So now here we have, at this point of the story, the walls are built. The city was ready for people to move back in. But before they moved back in, they determined to set a course for how they would live once they moved back into Jerusalem. That's chapter 8. And then after that, they read God's law. And through God's law, God instructed them how to live. And they realized they haven't lived the way God has called them to live. And so they confess their sin. That's chapter 9. And then they rededicate their lives to the Lord. And specifically, they pay particular attention to the areas of their lives where they have struggled in the past. So they pay attention to their marriages, the Sabbath day, the temple. That's chapter 10. And then just go back previously to the very last verse of chapter 10. Verse, what is that, 39. And even like the last sentence of it, actually. It says, we will not neglect the house of our God. This is a big time declaration, isn't it? And just, uh, you probably know this, where was the house of God or the temple? It was Jerusalem, right? So if they were not going to neglect the house of God, then they would need people in Jerusalem. Makes sense, doesn't it? The same principle worked when they rebuilt the walls. The walls weren't going to operate themselves. The walls weren't going to build themselves. They needed people to do it. And so here they displayed courage because they saw a need and they met it. They saw a need and they met it. You know, friends, God has given his church a mission today. It's not to rebuild the physical walls of a city. It's to expand the spiritual walls of his city. 
And sinners enter the kingdom of God, his city, not through the good works that they have done, not through earning their way back there, but because the king has shed his own blood as payment for their sin so that they can have entrance and peace with God. And now we say Jesus has promised that he will build his church. He will expand this city. But the way he does that is through his church. He adds more people to his kingdom through his people. Why else does he tell the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray that God would send more laborers into the harvest. Why else does Romans 10 verse 14 say this? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Brothers and sisters, there is a need. Will we have courage to meet that need? There is a need for people to hear the gospel of life. People who are dead in their sin just like we were. Will we have a courage to meet that need? You know, Charles Spurgeon said that there are only two kinds of Christians. He said that there are missionaries and there are imposters. Christians are ambassadors for Christ. It is time, friends, to have courage to step up and embrace the mission that the Lord has given to us. And friends, we say, you can do this. God does not call us to what he does not equip us for. We have the Holy Spirit with us. Jesus' presence is with us. We have the Father's love with us. And we have each other. We go forward in this mission together, not as individuals. So friends, there is a need where we have courage to step up and meet it like the people who moved back to Jerusalem did. And before we move on, let's just think about this. Let's get concrete for a moment. Let's start in a practical way. I want you to get one person in your mind, one name. One person you know who does not know Jesus. A person that you hopefully see pretty regularly. You get that name in your head and you commit in the next week, in the next month. Get that person in your home. Share a meal. Care for that person. Ask them how they are. Ask them how you could pray for them. Hey, be up front with them. Say, I know this might be weird. Would you be comfortable if I asked you a personal question? Ask if they have a faith. Ask what they believe about Jesus, what they think about him. And go from there. Go in humility, go in love, but go in courage. God has given us a mission. There is a need where we have courage to step up. Why did this group of people move to Jerusalem? We're arguing that it was a display of courage. We say they saw a need and they stepped up and related to that. After this big time declaration, they recognized something. They recognized that big words should be followed by big action. So these are people who walk, who talk a big talk. He said, they say, we will not neglect the house of our God. And now they walk a big walk. As you know this, we can't just say that we believe something. We have to show that we believe it by how we live. Isn't this all over the book of James? James chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Big words should be followed by big action. It's a good question to ask ourselves as we examine ourselves regularly. Do we really live like what we believe is true? 
17th century uh, English pastor, he's from Worcester, England, named Richard Baxter. He had a motto when it came to his preaching. He said that he preached as a dying man to dying men. He preached as a dying man to dying men. So he wanted to keep that perspective in front of him. And something that helped him with that is that Richard Baxter dealt with the disease most of his life, a disease that kept him near death. And when you deal with that, it gives you clarity about what most matters in life. It gave Richard Baxter clarity to be honest and consistent to live out what he believes. It gave him clarity about what truly matters, clarity that life is short, clarity that we will stand before God, clarity that we are hopeless without Jesus standing in our place. Brothers and sisters, we believe big truths. Will we follow them with big action? That will take courage, just like the people who moved back to Jerusalem. Why did this group move back to this rundown city? Well, they had to have courage. They had courage to believe that God was up to something bigger in this city. They had courage to believe that God was up to something bigger in Jerusalem. Verse 1, notice there that it calls Jerusalem the holy city. The holy city. God set apart this place as where he would uniquely dwell, where his presence would uniquely be on earth. But the story of Jerusalem is bigger than just this. From Jerusalem, God had promised to bring salvation to all the nations of the earth. So maybe the people who moved back to Jerusalem had Isaiah chapter 2 in mind. Isaiah chapter 2, which says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. How would God bring salvation to the nations of the earth from Jerusalem? He would do it on a different mountain. He would do it on a lonely hill called Calvary where the Son of God stood crucified in the place of sinners. Not just sinners from Israel, but sinners from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue of all the people who would trust in his name and declare him as Lord and Savior. By moving to Jerusalem, these people, they aligned themselves with God's bigger plan and God's bigger purpose. Brother and sister, let's, let's be real. You have freedom in Christ to live where you want to live. You have freedom in Christ to work in the areas where God has gifted you. But let me ask you something. When it comes to the biggest decisions of your lives, when it comes to your idea of what the good life is, have you sufficiently considered God's plan and God's purposes, and not just your own plan and your own purposes. We have to have courage to do that. Moving to Jerusalem, friends, I'm arguing that this was a display of courage. If you still don't believe me, then let's ask the opposite question. Not just why did so many people move back to Jerusalem, why did so many people not want to move back to Jerusalem? Right? I mean, clearly this is something that not a lot of people wanted to do. That's why they had to draw straws to go there. That's why they blessed the ones who went willingly. Another 17th century English pastor, Matthew Henry, uh, he wrote a commentary on the entire Bible. Needless to say that he probably didn't have Netflix. Uh, He asked the same question. 
why did so many people not want to move to Jerusalem? And he suggests three reasons. First, people didn't want to move back there because they didn't want to live holy lives. Remember, Jerusalem's called the holy city, right? Matthew Henry says this. He says, those who care not for being holy themselves are shy of dwelling in a holy city. Christian, do you want to live a holy life? Does this keep you from growing in Christ, from enjoying Jesus more? Is there some kind of sinful habit that you just don't want to leave behind? Friend, if you're here this morning, you don't trust in Jesus. Does this reason keep you from trusting in Jesus? Do you think about all the things that you might have to give up if you follow Jesus? You might have to give up your reputation with your friends. You might have to give up certain things you watch. You might have to give up this and that. That's good. Jesus says to count the cost of following him. But Jesus is very clear. It is worth it. Christians focus not on what they have given up. Christians focus on what they have gained. Why didn't people want to move back to Jerusalem? Well, another reason could be that Jerusalem was dangerous. Jerusalem was dangerous. Their neighbors hated them. The nations around them leveled threats against them constantly. Matthew Henry says this. He says, fear of persecution and reproach keeps many people out of the holy city. Christian, is this why you won't take risks for the Lord? It's risky to share your faith, isn't it? We, can we be frank? It's, it's not as big of risk as many other people face around the world. But we, will we not take risks for the Lord because we are afraid? Well, do you understand that God is with you in the risk? And he will never leave you in that risk? My non-Christian friend this morning, is, is it your life's goal to be stress-free? I think that's how mo- most of us function most of the time. It's your life's goal to be stress-free. Friend, you know as well as I do, that's like nailing down jello. It's not going to happen. Hear Jesus' words from Mark chapter 8, verse 36. He says, for whoever would save his life, for whoever would try to make their lives and achieve this stress-free, whoever would save his life, try to do this, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Give your life to Jesus, not yourself. Why didn't nobody want to move back to Jerusalem? Third reason. Jerusalem offered no worldly advantage. It offered no worldly advantage. Again, Matthew Henry says, Jerusalem was no trading city, and therefore there was no money to be gotten there by merchandising, as there was to be money gotten in the country by corn and cattle. You guys remember the parable of the sower? Jesus talks about this when the sower casts a seed on different types of soil. Certain seed grows up, other seed doesn't. You remember what the thorns were that choked out the seed? You remember? This is Bible Jeopardy. It was the cares of the world, right? Cares of the world that choked out the seed of the gospel. Another one of Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 6. He tells us, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. It's a good check on our heart, Christian brother and sister. Our temporary, earthly things keeping us from enjoying the Lord, from serving the Lord. A non-Christian friend, have you banked your life 
on something that won't save your life, on something that will rust and destroy. It's a courage to trust in God and move to a place where there was no financial advantage. It's a courage to move back to Jerusalem. I don't know how many of you, when you come here, you, drive, you take State Road. I normally take 480 uh, and exit at State Road, and then I'm driving down here toward Grantwood. And when you're driving on State Road, in between all the bars, in between all the, uh, the Orthodox churches, you're going to find a sign for a dentist's office. And you've got to pay really close attention because you might miss it. And you've got to pay extra close attention because it's faded. Red letters, big red letters. This dentist's office sign says, we cater to cowards. Have you seen that one? We cater to cowards. And you know what? I, I think we could say something similar this morning. We cater to cowards. With all this talk about courage, can we be honest? We're not courageous. <laughs> we are cowards. We have been cowards. Maybe we've had our moments, Okay. But if it's on us to display some otherworldly courage to save ourselves, friends, we will fail. That's why the display of courage that matters ultimately is not this move into Jerusalem, but another move into Jerusalem. The move of the king who came riding into that city on a donkey. The move to the Jerusalem that came from the king who volunteered, who went willingly to do what nobody else could do, to do what nobody else wanted to do, to do what nobody else could do. Stand as a son of God, a son of man, the representative of sinners, bearing the full weight of God's wrath, drinking that bitter cup. And he drank that bitter cup for sinners, even sinners who were the cowards who deserved him, who deserted him. Even the cowards who deserted him. Jesus died for their sin. And it makes me think of that because we come to the end of chapter 11 and you look at the people in the villages surrounding Jerusalem. I think these people remind us that not all of God's people have this headline-making courage. Not all of God's people are the men of valor that verse 6 describes. But you know what? These people in the villages, they are still God's people. God still uses them. God still calls them to trust in him. God still calls them to live for them. So to all of us here who know we are cowards, welcome. We can never save ourselves anyway. But let Jesus' courage for you remind you that you still belong. And knowing that can give you the courage that you never had on your own. So let's transition from chapter 11 to chapter 12. We go from courage displayed to courage remembered. Now I'm certain you just, you take a look at the content of chapter 12. I'm certain at this point, you know, Nehemiah's writing, he's been working really hard and Nehemiah's editors are in the room and they stop him, they bust in the door, they say, Nehemiah, hold on, don't go on. Before you go on, have you considered this? We got to think about how we can keep our readers engaged. What if, just picture this, Nehemiah. What if we include another long list of ancient Israelite names? What do you think? I think our publishers will be thrilled. Just to be clear, that's not what happened. Although we are tempted to think that. I'm trying to make the point that God is the one 
who ultimately stands behind every word of Scripture. So this chapter, chapter 12, must have some kind of purpose. So look a little bit closely. Uh, This is a list of priests, Levites, and heads of houses from days gone by, days previous to Nehemiah. More specifically, verses 1 to 7 tell us about the priests and Levites who came back to Jerusalem with this guy named Zerubbabel. This was the first wave of Israelites to return from exile in order to rebuild the temple. Then as it continues, the chap- chapter 12 talks about the line of high priests. The line of high priests that goes from guys named Jeshua to Joachim to Eliashib to Joiada to Jonathan to Jadua. In verse 12, we see we learn, we find out more about the days of the high priest Joachim. In verse 22, we find out more about the days of the high priest Eliashib. And what's Nehemiah doing here? So Nehemiah is listing the high priest from the time of, this, of the first return to the time of his own day. And he's saying that all, and by doing this, he's communicating that this entire group of people is part of the same effort to restore the worship of God in Jerusalem. By doing this, Nehemiah is communicating that his generation is not the first generation to display courage. There were faithful, courageous generations that came before them. They stood on the shoulders of courageous followers of God who came before them. Friends, this is a good word to us. This is a good word to us because, you know, we tend to put on blinders especially historical blinders, and just focus on ourselves. We stand to take the counsel from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Remember the courage of previous generations. Remember the courage of previous generations. Remember that God has gotten his people through much darker days than our day. I don't know if you need to hear this this morning, and I know everything on your news feed and everything on cable television would try to convince you otherwise. 2021 is not hard for God. 2021 is not hard for God. He sustained his people. He advanced his gospel in cities where drunken orgies are commonplace. God sustained his people and advanced his gospel where Christians are beaten and imprisoned. God has sustained his people and advanced his gospel where hordes of people indulge in demonic practices in cities like that. And friends, that's just a couple chapters from the book of Acts. 2021 is not hard for God. Remember the courage of previous generations. We don't just remember those people. We remember the God of previous generations. That's the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11, isn't it? This great cloud of witnesses basically telling us that if God did this for us, he can do this for you. Let the people who came before us, who trusted in the Lord before us, Give us courage to continue to fix our eyes on Jesus. Remember the courage of previous generations. 
Remember the God of previous generations. And look at chapter 12. Just pick out a few names here. If you can pronounce them, do your best. Are these names you recognize from Veggie Tales? I don't. Maybe I missed that episode, but I don't. These are ordinary people. Ordinary people who displayed courage and faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, have heroes who are ordinary. Read the Martin Luthers. Read the Corey Ten Booms. Read the Frederick Douglasses. But don't just go for the big names. Don't just go for the influencers. Remember ordinary, faithful people. Teach your children to do that. Do that as you pray through your church member directory. Have ordinary heroes who display courage. So in verse 27, Nehemiah returns to the action of his day. He says, everything is in place now. Walls are up. People are ready to move in. Now it's time to dedicate that wall and it's time to celebrate. And these are courageous fruits. Last point. The first fruit of courage is joy. And we see this at the dedication of the wall. Let's just go over what happened there when they dedicated the walls of Jerusalem. Verses 27 to 30 tell us that they prepared for a big celebration. They invited everybody. It says, get the word out. And they're saying, don't say maybe on your RSVP. You got to be here. Verse 27, they sought the Levites in all their places. This would have been a lot of people, thousands of people. Because remember, there was just one temple, but there were thousands of Levites. That's why King David, back in 1 Chronicles 24, he made 24 divisions of Levites. So they would have temple duty for two weeks out of the year. But instead of just one group of Levites being there for two weeks, all of the Levites would be there. All of the priests would be there. In verses 28 to 30 says, when they came, they purified themselves. Doesn't really give details about what that involves, but the principle is basic. They made sure they were pure for the worship of God. And then verse 31, it tells us that Nehemiah called for two choirs. If you pay attention, these choirs, they didn't just stand beside the, the walls. They didn't just stand around the walls. They went up and stood on top of the walls. Now, this is significant if you remember what's come before in Nehemiah. Because back in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3, all of the haters around Israel went up to Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem rebuilding these walls, and they say, these walls stink. Why are you wasting your time? They said in Nehemiah 4, verse 3, if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. And now we got these hordes of people standing on the wall. So these two choirs, they walked on top of the entire wall and they meet at the temple. Ezra leads one group. Nehemiah leads the other group. And they walk around the wall and they did this as they thanked God and they sang to God for what he had done for them. I think verse 43 is just kind of the culmination, the summary of the entire wall dedication. Verse 43 says, They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. I want us to try to enter the mind of a couple of characters in this scene, Ezra and Nehemiah. 
I wonder what Ezra and Nehemiah were thinking during this celebration. Because these guys had been through so much, hadn't they? These guys had suffered. These guys had left successful empires to go and help a rundown city filled with stubborn people. Ezra and Nehemiah endured smear campaigns, physical threats, setbacks. But God had put it in their hearts to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls, and to restore worship of God in the city of Jerusalem. And now here they are. The work's done. And I wonder if Ezra and Nehemiah had pictured this joyous moment. I wonder if the hope that this joyous moment would eventually come, I wonder if that hope fueled their courage to keep going, fueled their courage to persevere. Brothers and sisters, the the same thing should work for us. The joy that awaits us should fuel our courage now. Because, friends, our courage to trust God is not for nothing. We say that one day our faith will be sight. Courage leads to joy, and our joy will be full. The Bible says those who, reap in, those who sow in tears will reap shouts of joy. And so we've got to realize just kind of this dynamic that God has given us. Thinking about how God will give us joy in the future will give us courage in the present. Thinking about how God will give us joy in the future will give us courage in the present. Maybe like Ezra and Nehemiah. Maybe like Jesus. What did we read earlier from Hebrews 12? It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what did that allow him to do? Endure the cross, despise the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Think about the joy that has come in the future will give us courage in the present. First John chapter 3, you may have heard these verses before. Verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, who thinks about this, Everyone who does that purifies himself as he is pure. Thinking about the joy in the future gives us courage in the present. Theologian Don Carson, uh, I've heard him tell the story about one of the first women who swam the English Channel. This was way back when. And on the first day, uh, on her first attempt, it was cloudy, it was foggy. And so the visibility wasn't very good on the water. And she, even though she was in the physical shape to finish, She didn't. She gave up about halfway through. But then she tried again. And on the day of her second attempt, it was clear, sunny, not a cloud in the sky. And she made it. And so what was the difference? Well, she said on the second time, the second attempt, she could see the shore. She could see what's ahead. Christian, when we lose our sight of heaven, when we lose our sight of the joy that is, awaits us, we will quickly grow not encouraged, but discouraged. And our strength will fade. And so let's make this real for just a moment. You know, lots of us have different medical things going on. 
doctor's appointments, treatments, medicines to manage. I've seen, you know, you got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, all those little pill boxes. You got to put them in. That's a lot to do. And these are good gifts, treatments and medicines and doctors. These are, these are good gifts that God works through them. But you understand that these are temporary things, that these do not save us from death. There's only one person who does that. Let us not focus so much on medicine, as good of a gift that it is, that we forget about heaven and the true healing that is to come. When we remember the joy that the Lord will bring us, it reminds us of what is truly significant, not just what is outwardly uh, impressive. I wonder if Ezra and Nehemiah, just thinking about their perspective, these guys knew Persia. These guys knew a big, successful, rich empire. And they, I bet they could compare that to what they see in front of them in Jerusalem. But it was the, tr- the joy that was set before them that would give them perspective to see what is truly significant. The heart of what, is, what truly matters and what will last, even though it is outwardly unimpressive. We thank God for the people in this room. We thank God for, for how he's given us a place to gather. Let's just be honest, friends. I know at least I'm tempted to think this. Maybe you're tempted to think this. This gathering is not impressive. It's just on our own. I'm included in this. This is not impressive. Guys, if this is just a nice hobby, if this is just a nice hobby on Sunday mornings, I dare I say, you could have a way better hobby, <laughs> right? You could have a way cooler hobby. But we say the joy that awaits us gives us perspective to see what is truly significant, not just what is outwardly impressive. God has given us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's First Peter. So these gatherings are the first day of the week. The first day of the week, the day of the week when Jesus got up from the grave, these gatherings remind us of what's to come. That because we are united to Jesus by faith, one day we will have a resurrected and glorified body like his. That what is outwardly unimpressive now will be in glory when we are with the Lord then. Another C.S. Lewis quote, couldn't resist. He says, remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person, even the people at church, the dullest, most uninteresting person you could talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Friends, this looks unimpressive here. But the joy that is to come reminds us that this is not insignificant. But just to clarify, to nuance it a little bit, All this to say that the joy that awaits us, the joy that is to come, it is not to say that we can't have joy and celebration now. You know, we Christians, we live in what's called the already, not yet. The already, not yet. Jesus has already paid the full and final price for our sin, brought us back to God. God has already forgiven us. God has already made us his children. God has already given us his spirit. There is reason for joy and thanksgiving now. Throw back to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, it says, in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 5, it says, to be filled with the Spirit is to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is reason for joy and thanksgiving now 
But we live in the already, not yet. We have not yet received all of God's promises. Full joy still awaits us. We wait for our Savior to come and make all things new, to rid us of sin, to wipe away all our tears, to dwell with us face to face. Their courage led to joy. And thinking about the joy that was to come fueled their courage in the present. And another fruit of their courage, real quick. Courage led to joy, and their joy led to obedience. It's how chapter 12 closes. Look at verses 44 to 47. Their joy led to obedience. So what did they do after they dedicated the wall? I think verse 47 sums it up well. It says, And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron's. After they dedicated the wall, this big-time celebration, what do they do? They took up an offering. They walked in obedience. And just to remind you of the significance of this, what was Israel's financial situation when they returned back to their home country? When they left Persia and they left Babylon, were they flush with cash? No. It says Jerusalem was run down and many of the homes hadn't been rebuilt yet. And yet here, their joy leads to their giving, their generosity, and their obedience. They were starting over, and yet they supported the temple and the city operations from their daily incomes. These verses didn't say that they did this only because they had to do it. These verses say they did this because they wanted to do it. End of verse 44 says, For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. That's why they gave. They gave out of their joy. Brothers and sisters, how you spend your money, just like how you live your entire life, just like all of our obedience, that comes from what we take joy in. What we take joy in. That's why Jesus said that where your heart is, there your treasure is also. Whatever captivates your heart is what will set the course for your life. Why else is the first commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might? It's because that will set the course for everything else. What we take joy in, what we love, leads to our obedience. That's why God says that he loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want us to give just out of some ritual going through the motions. We give and we obey out of our joy in him. And so we take a look back at all of chapters 11 and 12. Dedicate the walls, moving back into Jerusalem. It seems like one big triumph. And we're going to see if it stays that way next week. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. But for now, we have to say, like always, that God gets all the glory here. God is the one who settled his people back into the land. God is the one who moved the hearts of kings. God is the one who moved the hearts of his people. God is the one who protected them in order for them to rebuild. God is the one who restored them and caused them to repent. God is the one who accomplished his plan and his purpose. So we say that we did in the beginning. God will vindicate our courage and trust in him. And that should give us endurance to keep going. All right? Let's pray.
Oh, sovereign God, we are weak and frail, but you know our frame. You know that we are merely dust. We thank you, God, that, Father, like you, you tend and care for us, that you are strong and mighty, and we take refuge not in our courage, but in yours, Lord Jesus, that you did what we could not do, what we didn't even want you to do, You brought us back to our creator. 